Um, I am going to have to say something about the publishing comment, I just know. Um, and I have seen the street cleaners. Though I live in Brooklyn, so I don't understand what there is to clean. Um, um, so, let's see. Um, I'm going to talk... Thanks for having me, by the way. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks... Yeah, I, There's a lot of choices out there, and, you know, so... Uh, and thanks, Monty, for putting on a conference. And actually, I, I see I am connected to Monty more sort of in theory than in in person because when I'm in bookshops in New York, especially the Strand, whenever I hear people groaning under the weight of a book as they drag it to the counter on, or they use a forklift truck, I know it's one of Monty's <laughs> um, thousand-page novels as, uh, as uh, people cross Eden towards the checkouts. Um, so, um, but, you know, I, I go to the Strand a lot. That's how exciting my life is. And um, Monty's books come and go. I mean, they're in one week and they're sold the next. So it's nice to see, you know, look at the shelves and see people you know and see their books just really, you know, being enjoyed. Um, that said, I'm going to talk today uh, first uh, a little about the creative life uh, and then about the craft of, of writing um, and I'm going to address maybe, you know, the idea of, of agenting and publishing and maybe a little bit about where the industry's gone and why there are many reasons not to be in despair. Um, so I think the best stories uh, come from life. And um, Floor, who, whose book just really floored me, and, uh, and my wife just couldn't put it down, um, which meant I had to stay awake and get her cups of tea uh you know it's a an excellent book and it comes from from uh her life experience um when you've written your first book and usually you know you you use things that have happened to you as subjects then you start looking elsewhere and that's when things get sort of exciting i think um when it, you know it's it's never easy to find uh representation i certainly it was a nightmare really i felt like sisyphus pushing my manuscript up a hill and uh but um you know after and it's usually so personal that any rejection feels personal the fact is if you've written a good book and it gets rejected and it feels bad that means it's you've done a really good job because if you didn't care it wouldn't mean it would mean that the book wasn't authentic you see so i think pain is part of being a writer, unfortunately, but a kind of pain that other people can't see. Um, so I, I think I'd take a, a knife wound any day, actually, um, over the pain of a rejection or a bad review. Um, so <laughs> um, I don't think I'll get my wish in Santa Barbara. Um, um, so my, one of my favorite painters, Lucian Freud, said that you... Um, you you spend your life as an artist preserving the things that you feel are precious. And I think if you can do that, then you're enormously successful. Um, because if, you, if, we, if we flash forward, you know, a few hundred billion years, you know, when the sun will collapse into, you know, a series of different dwarves, I'm sure Disney will make a film about it, um, you know, and then the world, planet Earth will cease to be. And so, you know, all, unless we've moved into space, all evidence of human existence will be completely eradicated, you see. So at the end of the day, all we can ask from our books 
is that they were a true reflection of how we felt at a certain time and that they're authentic. Because, you know, whatever the industry rewards doesn't always reflect what's good. Um, and in fact, at least half the books I pick up that genuinely excite me are from small presses or self-published because they're exciting works. Um, so remember that we're the artists and we control the industry. Um, you know, not um, people who've you know come from other sectors to, to 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 run a corporation. So we have to really have faith in our own abilities and our own voices. Um, you know, whether they're heard as as much as we'd like them to be. Um, so we should probably start trying to buy billboard companies, shouldn't we? And like putting our faces on them. Um, great literature, of course, is a contradiction. Uh, I remember sitting next to a, a, a man on a flight to London, and uh, he was from San Francisco. And uh, you know, about an hour into the to the flight, after we'd eaten, he told me that you know he'd killed twenty two people, and I thought, oh, great. Like, there's really going to be a story here. Um, because if he passed through security, he can't be that bad, you know, according to you-know-who. And um, so um, it turns out that during the AIDS epidemic, he assisted with, um, you know, euthanasia. He, he, he was the person for assisted suicides. And he said that the coroner turned a blind eye because so many people were suffering. And I thought, you know, there's a story there. So, again, stories come from life. Um, Another way I think uh, writing is literature other than just good writing is when it goes to unexpected places. For instance, when you read a sentence and you're pleasantly delighted by how it ends. You couldn't have imagined that the writer would have chosen those words. Uh, that's, that's always very nice. Remember, we're not writing for people who want to escape life. We're writing for people who want a deeper experience of life. And sometimes we're, we're sending our books to people who are catering to the, the former reader, uh, which is perfectly fine. But um, it's not as fulfilling, is it? You know, when a book goes into someone's hands and it changes their life course. And I think that's what we're all aiming for. Um, so we, one writer once told me that we, we spend our lives in a sort of prison, but we, uh, we don't realize it until we're outside of it. And then we can't believe how long we spent in this, in this sort of cell where there's no locks and no jailers and no bars. Um, but I think that stories help, us get us, get, help get us out sooner because stories allow us to imagine uh, you know, ourselves in, in a different scenario. Uh, and that's why, of course, stories are so important to children. Uh, Mr. Rogers, who I'm sure you all know and love, um, he's... He said he got into uh, children's programming because he was sick of seeing people degrade each other. Because, of course, when you're afraid, you know, you, it's easy to, to catch someone's attention when they're feeling fear. And um, so I think his program was really a testament to his belief in, in humanism. Um, so stories really are, are vital to mental health. Um, you know, doctors look after our bodies. But if you ask a doctor, any, an internist, you know, how can I have a good life? They can't tell you. Maybe smoke less, drink less, try and get some exercise, um, try not to watch the Kardashians every day. Uh, um, but um, it takes artists to help us gauge 
the quality of our lives, you know, what we, what's possible. Uh, we have all these freedoms we don't realize we have uh, because, you know, we're simply not aware of them. And we can, we can age into it, you know, or we can take the shortcut and be readers. Um, so remember that when you're writing, you're not writing for people to, to uh, what, what's going to sell, or you're writing to that person right now who's suffering terribly, and your book is going to be that light that guides them out of the tunnel. And that's really the goal. So, you know, if we think about famous artists like uh, Van Gogh, if he put, you know, Starry Night on Instagram, he wouldn't get any likes. Um, so I try and tell my daughter this, but of course she doesn't understand. Um, the, um, and of course being creative on the page, it can really revolutionize your life. You know, you can start, uh, a writing practice, and you can get deeper into it, and then suddenly your whole life is changing because it's impossible to be creative in one way. You know, if you're if you're creative on the page, then you're going to start cooking very strange things, um, and you might just start deciding to walk places, um, or you might you know go to the supermarket in your nightgown, you know, or you might just buy fluff. You ever seen that the marshmallow spread? I don't, I've never seen anybody put that in their cart. Um, so living a creative life is enormously exciting. Um, and the great thing about it is if you gave up, you know, that your people who love you, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't think any less of you, but you don't give up. And it's so torturous, isn't it? I mean, it really is a nightmare. Um, just when you think everything's going well, the next day you realize no, nothing's gone well. Actually, this is a complete... I've been going in the wrong direction. Um, and that's really how it is. That's why conferences like this are so good, because we get to sort of meet people who are suffering in the same way. And we don't have to be. <laughs> we choose to put ourselves through it. Um, so the, uh, the first story I'm going to read, if that's okay with you while I've got you cornered, is, um, is, about, is based on something that supposedly happened. I was in, I go to Ireland about a couple of times a year and, um, you know, people will say, oh, would you like to come back for a cup of tea? And I say, always say yes. And I went to, uh, a, you know, some, a house and they fed me bread and butter and blank pudding. You don't want to know what that is. It's not any kind of cake. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and there was a dog under the table that I was secretly feeding. And um, and uh, they sat me down and uh, they said, you know, you're a writer, so we want to tell you a story. And uh, for about seven or eight years, I really tried to, to turn it into something, but I couldn't because I, I just didn't have the skills. I'm sure you have stories now in your story bank um, that you just can't do anything with, you know, but you will eventually. I mean, the more you, the more you read, the more you learn. That's why sometimes if you've been working on a book for a long time and it's, 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 you just can't finish it, it's because you're reading and you're constantly learning that whenever you go back to it, you've got new skills. And the structure of the book won't support that level of ability, you see. So um, I always try and give myself a, a, a one-year deadline on all projects. Um, otherwise, they start to, you know, become like anchors, uh, not in a good way. Um, so this character, the, the Irish father in this story, is, um, is not somebody who had a creative life 
at all. And in a way, he's the main character of the story. Um, this story, which um, is uh, titled as such, so I thought if I get any bad reviews, maybe people won't really read them and they'll just see the title and they'll think, oh, it's good. Um, What's funny is, though, often, you know, if a reviewer gets it right, they get it right for the wrong reasons. And if they get it wrong, they get it wrong for the wrong reasons. So, um, so this is based on a story told to me in a kitchen at about midnight in County Cork uh, in about 2009 or 2010. Until the fire, nobody much cared for the McCrutchens. They just weren't used to living in the town. The children were rowdy and unkempt and walked five abreast along the pavement, laughing at the old and shouting silly things at other people's children. Mr. and Mrs. McCrutchen had been married since they were teenagers. The service took place in a stone church. Maggie was a young bride, even by country standards. Standing barefoot in white, she concentrated on what the priest was saying without truly understanding. The groom's mother gave her a piece of silver jewellery and she wore it around her neck. The groom arrived with his friends. He wore a gold hoop in one ear. The sleeves of a dark suit fell over his knuckles. They rode away on a chestnut horse. To be a McCrutchen child meant knowing every detail of the story. It's just a matter of time, their mother would sometimes say when she put them to bed, before the lottiers start falling in love, one by one, like bottles knocked off a wall. They moved to the village of Douglas because the school was known for being good. Mr. and Mrs. McCrutchen dreamed their children might get on in life, but then their house burned down. Some said it was a cigarette or an unattended toaster. Others believed it was a candle blown into net curtains by wind. There'd not been a fire like this in Douglas for 30 years. The street was blocked off with orange cones. The neighbours were told to move their cars. The McCrutchens bunched together on the glistening tarmac in their nightclothes. Firemen rushed about with hoses and ladders, trying to save other houses. Maggie McCrutchen was crying in front of everybody. The money her husband had given her to get an insurance policy she had paid to the dentist. Her daughter had crooked teeth and people at school were laughing. The children stayed with different neighbours as no one had room for all seven. The next morning, their blackened, dripping things were carried out into the street. The guards put up fences to keep people out. The youngest had left her doll in the panic to escape. So one of the fire inspectors came back after his shift to look for it, but had a new one in his pocket just in case. Then a month after the fire, very early... A fleet of workmen's trucks drove slowly up the street and then parked outside the charred ruin. The fences came down, and there were workers from Cork and engineers from Dublin tramping about in their boots with charts and cameras and special equipment that was yellow. The McCrutchens were living in a bungalow owned by the church near the quarry, a place empty for years and riddled with damp, but it cost nothing more than regular appearance at Mass. When the McCrutchen children heard at school about the workmen, And the ladders, they thought it was a joke. Eventually, a woman from the building department showed up at the bungalow. Signatures were needed so the workers could proceed. At first, everyone thought the church had called in a favour from Rome, the Pope himself. But one of the workmen on his tea break 
said it was a neighbour who'd arranged everything through Dublin lawyers as they wished to remain anonymous. All the McCrutchens had to do was pick the tiles, choose the paint, and find carpet with a pattern they liked. Dogs who'd barely left the hearth in years were now being dragged around the block several times a day. The hunger for gossip was insatiable. A few neighbours pretended they knew who it was, but had been sworn to secrecy. Husbands coming home late from the pub on Friday night woke their wives to confess secret hordes of euro. Eventually, someone on the street did find out, a woman called Penny Carr, who was known for her chrysanthemums. This is how it happened. About 12 months after the fire, the McCrutchens moved into their rebuilt home. They had a party, invited everyone, the neighbours, the guards, the fire crew, the priest, even some of the workers. Everyone had to take their shoes off and the youngest McCrutchen children were charged with arranging them in size order by the front door. There was a rumour the identity of the benefactor would be revealed at the party. And so the whole street packed the McCrutchen house with drinking, eating, singing, dogs and children running over the new carpet in bare feet. The only person not in attendance was Kitty O'Donnell, who lived at 77. She'd gotten fairly ill and most of the time was propped up in bed with the television on and something hot to drink. Kitty was a local woman who'd grown up in the city of Cork nearby and then moved to Douglas when her husband and her got married. After he died, she was alone. The day after the McCrutchen's housewarming, Penny took some cake to her elderly neighbour. They had a nice talk. Mostly things on the news and the weather. The old woman kept patting Penny's hand. Do you not have many visitors, Mrs. O'Donnell? Not so much. It's just me left now. With her husband at work in the day and their one daughter at the college in Dublin, Penny decided to go over again to see Kitty a few days later. She called first on the telephone. Kitty said to use the key under the flower pot. The front room was full of still grey light that seeped through delicate curtains of lace, now yellow with age. Mrs. O'Donnell said they'd been from the time of her wedding. There were photographs of her husband in pretty frames, looking as Penny remembered him from their long and happy life together. And it had been a good life, better than most. Kitty knew that and was grateful for it. The visits from Penny became regular. One day, Kitty sat up too quickly and knocked her tea. The mug didn't break, but the carpet was wet. Penny got down and soaked as much as she could into a hand towel. It was me, you know, Mrs. O'Donnell said as her neighbour pushed on the stain. What paid for the McCrutchen's house? Penny laughed. You, Kitty? I? I never would have guessed it was you. Well, now you know. You're the secret millionaire on the street, are you? That's right. <laughs> Penny looked up, wondering if the old woman's mind was finally starting to falter. Where'd you keep it then? Under the mattress, is it? Down in the town, actually. Locked up in the bank. When Penny thought the stain was faint enough, she stopped rubbing and put the towel on the tray to go downstairs. I'm not joking, Penny. Do you promise to keep it under your hat? Well, if you're the secret millionaire, Kitty, at least tell me how you came to have such a fortune. Lottery, was it? Were you really one to know? Aye. Mm, because it's a long story and a sad one, too. So, 
I'm all ears, Kitty. Oh, well, maybe on your next visit. <laughs> Penny laughed with some awkwardness. Well, if you want, I can make you some lunch and you can tell me after we've eaten. Mrs. O'Donnell couldn't resist. You're afraid I'll die before you come round again. <laughs> Her neighbor's cheeks burned. I'll be 92 in the spring, Penny. Oh, I know it's a grand age, so it is. After opening a can of soup, then pouring it into a silver pot, Penny looked around at all Kitty's things, searching for some clue to her wealth. But the interior of number 77 was like every other home on the street, a sturdy kitchen table, bills stacked behind a small battery-operated clock, a bread bin full of hard crumbs, a cold fireplace, and a cabinet of ceramic figures painted in old clothes that were supposed to be valuable. After eating the soup and brewing another pot of tea, Mrs. O'Donnell said she was ready. The story was to begin in 1901. A little girl had just been born on a farm outside Douglas. Her name was Celia Riley. She had a nice time growing up, wandering the fields, walking her father to the pub, fetching water in buckets, the smell of green grass in summer, hay in the autumn. She was 15 years old when she met someone, a boy, just a little older than herself, from a village in the north of Ireland. He was down helping in the fields, earning money in the warm weather. After glancing at each other a few times, Celia and the young man took walks. They weren't supposed to be alone, but could always find a quiet path outside the village. At the end of summer, the boy went with his brother to fight in France against the Kaiser, they both died in the first week. Why they went, nobody really knew. It might have been the adventure, or an excuse to see Paris and hear a foreign language. At first, Celia thought it was sickness in her body from the shock of his violent death. She stayed in bed for several days, being looked after by her mother. Later on, it was clear to her what was happening. She sat her parents down in the kitchen, told them everything, the walks, the soft words, promises, the brutal but honourable way he died, and lastly, that inside her body was all that remained of him in the world. Her mother studied the floorboards without moving. Then her father stood in his clean, heavy boots and went to the cupboard. The key was in his waistcoat pocket. Celia thought she was going to be given some money, but he took down his shotgun. Celia's mother rushed over and put her hands over the barrel, but his mind was made up. She was allowed to go upstairs and pack a few of her things, but it was hard to see through such wet eyes. He waited for her downstairs with the front door wide open, the gun over his arm, the twin barrels like hard, eyeless sockets. She could hear her mother's voice, a long, low, petitioning whisper. Celia's father walked his daughter to the edge of the village. People who were out stopped to look. After he'd gone back, she sat by the roadside and looked at things without really seeing them. Then her mother came. She sat with her and they held one another. Then they walked the long road into Cork. There was a convent with spiked gates that accepted girls in her situation. After a week, it was all arranged. Celia would carry the child. Then once it was born, she would hand it over. The sisters already knew who the parents would be. 
Celia could live at the convent and work for the nuns. But over the years, Celia's mother had saved money from the odd scrap of sewing, and it was used for a ticket to America. There she could forget her mistake. Eight months later, Celia gave birth to a girl. She'd worked at the convent all that time and learned to live inside the person everybody saw and spoke to. During delivery, she was allowed to look at the baby, but not hold it nor touch its face. But, oh, she was lucky, the sister said. Most girls had to stay in the convent and work for the church for the rest of their lives to atone for their sin against him. The voyage seemed to take a very long time. Celia met some nice people in the ship who gave her advice about what to do when she got to America, what to say and how to behave. Her mother had arranged for work as a maid in a big house in Lower Manhattan. She could receive letters from home but could not send them. It was hard work, but there was lots to eat in the evening when the family went out and Celia could pretend it was her house. After a few months, an earring went missing. Celia looked everywhere. The woman said that stealing was like lying to God. Celia didn't realize she was being accused and agreed that it was a sin to steal, like lying to God. By that time, she'd made a few friends. One of them lived in a house for girls run by a former schoolteacher who agreed to give Celia a week or two of lodging until she could find a new situation. But without a reference, it was not easy. Celia imagined her former mistress discovering the earring, perhaps in the bedding, then begging her to come back. One day, she noticed a sign in the window of a restaurant. It was where the Italian section began. But in the evenings, Celia liked to walk all over. Help was wanted making dough. The restaurant was dark with burgundy drapes and oil paintings of ruined castles and shipwrecks. It was outside regular eating hours, but in the kitchen, men were sitting on crates playing cards. When she told them she wanted to help make the dough, they took cigarettes out of their mouths and laughed. But one of them, a stocky Sicilian called Reggie, got up and asked what experience she had. Celia told them how, as a girl, she'd made the family bread with her mother and knew all the tricks. When he spoke, the other men went quiet. He was very short and had very dark skin and a barrel chest. After a few months, she'd learned a few words of Sicilian, and Reggie knew a folk song in Gaelic. As he was several inches shorter than Celia, they drew glances as he walked her back to the house every night. Then he waited by the gate until the door had opened and she was inside. A year later, Reggie had saved and borrowed enough to open his own place. Would Celia work for him? She could be in charge, he said. Wasn't that what women wanted? All this time, Celia had been trying to keep away from her feelings. But she left her job to work with the ambitious Italian. And he was right. She wanted to be in charge. After another year, on one of their walks home, Reggie asked her to marry him. She told him that she couldn't. But when they got to the boarding house, he waited at the gate like always, waited till she was inside. And because of this, she accepted his proposal the next day. Three years later, they had four restaurants with a factory in the Bronx making pasta to supply other eating houses in the city. They were best friends as much as husband and wife, and while she knew about his temper, Reggie had never once raised his voice or spoken harshly in her presence. Eventually, of course, she told him. She had to. 
It was too hard, she said, living out of marriage with a lie underneath. She feared her husband would be upset, and he was upset, but not for the reason she anticipated. He stood with his hands flat on the walnut desk. You got to go back to Ireland and get her. And bring her here, Reggie. That's right, but don't be surprised if she's taller than me. (laughs) But what will people think? What will they say when I return with a child? Ah, to hell with people. Will you come with me? He said that he would not, that it was something she needed to do alone. A few days later, Celia Fidanzati sailed first class on the blue stalk. For most of the trip, she was on deck in her long coat, but sometimes she went down to the shared quarters and made friends with the girls who were alone. It was a week before Kitty O'Donnell's 82nd birthday when a lawyer came to Douglas from Dublin to see her. He was a partner at the law firm, and from his briefcase he took a folder with copies of Celia's marriage and death certificates stamped by the New York authorities. He also had photographs of a newspaper article, something from the obituary section of the New York Times. At the bottom of the article was a photograph of Celia and Reggie when they were first married, when the company was just the two of them. Also in the lawyer's possession was a letter written by Celia that he offered to read aloud because Mrs. O'Donnell's hands were shaking. The things written in the letter, were difficult to accept. The lawyer sat there and let her take it in. When she cried, he gave her a tissue. When she really wept, he stepped outside and waited until she was ready to go on. It's a hard thing to find out so late you were adopted, the lawyer told Kitty, but you're not alone. I think the worst of it, Kitty said, her voice faltering, was that... I never got to thank my parents, the ones who adopted me. I would like to have thanked them for making me believe I was theirs. The lawyer was good-natured. Ah, but you were theirs. Oh, how I loved them, Kitty said. And I would like to have told my husband, not that it would have mattered much, but we told each other everything, you know. Soon it was time for the lawyer to leave. Now, don't you rush, Mrs. O'Donnell, and don't give a thought to the money until you've made peace with yourself. That's just my advice. She didn't move for a long time until it was dark, and one by one, things in the kitchen began to disappear. With the papers still spread out before her on the table, a memory came back. It was something deep and hidden, which the day's events must have dislodged. When Kitty was nine or ten years old, She saw a woman standing at the end of her street. She had on a long coat with a belt and her hair was pinned neatly under a hat. The street was full of children running and shouting, but the woman was looking at her. She was sure of it, just standing there at the end of the road, staring at her. She remembered that she stopped jumping. The rope fell slack. The woman stood out against the grey, wet houses. Kitty remembered that in the pocket of her old house dress was a marble. She had found the marble and wondered if it belonged to the woman and that she had come to claim it. Then it started to rain 
But the woman in the long coat did not move. She just stood there at the end of the road, staring as the heavy drops soaked into her clothes and the other children disappeared one by one into their homes. There was family in America, the lawyer had told her, but Kitty felt it was too late, just too late for anything to be changed, except, of course, in her heart. That was very changed. She felt open now to the world, to the people suffering and the places outside the village that she had heard about on the news. The terrible things they went through were the things her mother must have felt too. But as she aged, Kitty O'Donnell found herself thinking mostly about her grandfather, the man who had marched his child to the edge of the village with a gun. She thought about him a lot. She even went and found where he was buried, then lay down on the ground and put her arms around the stone where his name was written. So you can imagine how it felt, how it was hard to leave the... After you know, feeding the dog and drinking tea and eating, eating black pudding, uh, two hours later, after I'd been told this story, you know, by the woman sitting... The woman sitting there is the woman who was the neighbour, by the way, who found out this story. And the old lady on the street, of course, um, never told anybody about her fortune because she, people would have just treated her differently, you know. So, um... um of course, the great thing about writing fiction is that if there's some part of the truth that doesn't really, it's not really in concert with how you see the story, you can just change it. <laughs> or you can make it up. That's why I'm sort of, um, you know, um, some people write memoirs, of course, but, um, you know, if you uh, make your bio on the back seem similar to the journey the character went on, people will just assume it's a memoir. Um, so... Um, one thing I want to say before talking briefly about craft, I think I only have about um, 10 minutes, um, is that you can't do everything with one book. Um, I wrote a children's novel, and this is comedy. Um, and the language in, in this story I just read had to be sacrificed for structure and plot. So, um, you know, we're, we're, John Berger said that we're encouraged in the West to define our interests as narrowly as possible because it's easier for things to be marketed to us. But I think that we should all be interested in whatever we want, you know, to whatever degree. This Portuguese writer, Fernando Pessoa, believed that we're all six, seven, eight different personalities, all jostling for supremacy. So each of his personalities would write books under that personality. And I think that's a very good idea. Um, just like, you know, you might like different types of cuisine, but you wouldn't like the same thing all the time. And if we look at musicians like Beethoven, early Beethoven is very different from late Beethoven, you know, and Van Gogh too. And uh, so, um, and even the work of James Joyce. I mean, Finnegan's Wake is a project to read. Um, um, you know, you'll save yourself uh, if you... If you don't drink but you want to feel drunk, just try reading Finnegan's Wake. Um, so I'll talk briefly about craft. And these are, very quickly, ten things. And then we'll do a Q&A so I can elaborate on anything. Ten things that um, I wish I'd known 
uh, 10 years ago when I, when I was really committed to, to, to writing. I took my test to become um, a banker, hedge fund, um, like with a, a company called UBS, Payne Weber. I don't even know if they're still around. But very nice people. And, um, but, you know, it wasn't me, really. Um, it would have been rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, as they say. Um, so uh, when I started writing seriously, these are things I, I wish I'd known. And the first thing is find your voice. How do you find your voice? You take um, 10 books that you love and 10 books that you hate and rewrite the first page of each of them. And uh, the books you love are the most interesting because um, you'll see how you're different from your favorite writers. So you'll start to see your own unique voice. And, of course, it's better to be unpolished and raw and original than, um, you know, like something else that's out there. So, you know, everyone in this room has their own unique writing voice that is not like anything else. Uh, And that will change over time, of course, but um, a good editor will help you uh, unearth that too. Uh, Don't impose too much of yourself on the story. Um, Just let the story reveal itself to you. And if it's not, then maybe it's because you're distracted or you're worried about something or it's just not a good time for you to be sitting at that desk at that moment. Um, But, of course, if you sit down and you start to work, magic will happen. You know, um, you don't wait for inspiration. Inspiration waits for you to sit down and start writing. Um, And, of course, writing should be slightly undercooked, underdone, because the reader completes it. You know, if I say talk about a man going into a kitchen, everybody imagines a different man in a different kitchen. So that's what's so unique about language is that, uh, you know, for every book, there are a million books. Um, Stay on the surface of the present, as Nabokov said. A lot of books um, that could be really good are stuck in the deep past, you know, with a lot of backstory. But we don't need backstory if we stay on the surface of the present, Um, because curiosity will pull the reader through uh, like a moving rope. Um, And get used to feeling uh, awful. Um, Because, um, you know, like imagine you're an interior designer and you go into a house after the builders have left and you just weep. You know, because you see, you know, the the pictures, the color, the walls you're going to hang, you know. But it's not going to be in that state until the last few weeks of um, of when the construction's finished. So just get used to dealing with a building site with scaffolding and people not showing up and uh, people overcharging you and sandwiches and cans of Budweiser being left everywhere. Just get used to chaos, uncertainty, depression. and um, But have faith that if it was easy, it wouldn't be a very good book. The harder it is, the better it's going to be. Um, so have faith. Have faith. Um, finding the right agent and editor is a bloody nightmare. Uh, you know, it's like a relationship, you know, obviously without arguing who empties the dishwasher, but, um, but it really is like finding someone to have a relationship with. It's, in fact, I found it easier to find, you know, partners than to find an agent or a an editor, and then when you do find them, they resign, or they go, they get into you know professional knitting or something. Um, getting published is inevitable if you keep going. You'll find the right fit eventually, through luck and through you know determination. But it, it'll happen. You know, you'll find the right publisher for you. Um, and um, getting published won't make you a better writer, though. It will just um, 
it'll just um, give you the illusion that you're better. Um, because if it gets published, it, was, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good book. Uh, do you see? So it's a bit of a paradox. Um, read only books that inspire you. Don't feel obligated. You know, you're not at your grandmother's house now. You don't have to finish a book you don't like. Put it away. Maybe go back to it in 10 years. For 10 years ago, I hated The Waves by Virginia Woolf. Now I sleep with it under my pillow. Um, um, have an inspiration shelf where you keep books, films, rocks, anything that inspires you. You know, keep the music of Satie or the Eagles or, you know, keep Ulysses or, you know, An Angel at My Table by Janet Frame. So when you start to flag and get tired, look at that shelf and remember that that's your tribe. They're your people and you're part of them. Um, don't let anyone or anything put out your fire. Um, a lot of people I meet have had it put out by their parents, you know, who failed in life or perceived that they failed and they just don't want their children to be disappointed because they feel like failure is inevitable. But, of course, failure is inevitable, but on the other side of failure is where we want to be, you see. So uh, the more failure we have, of course, the better we're going to be at whatever we do. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to see a, a dancer who hasn't rehearsed. Actually, it might be interesting, especially to put on YouTube, but um, you get the idea. The more you fail, the better you're going to be in the end. Um, um, when you've nursed your fire into an inferno, the kind of inferno that you had when you were young, that burning desire to do something original and unique, then the hard part comes, you have to parcel it out into daily portions. Joyce said that was the hardest thing because he wanted to just go, go, go at his desk and not leave. But, of course, you can't because you burn out and you have a nervous breakdown. Um, so patience is a difficult trait. Um, and um, remember that what makes you great... It's more than ten things, isn't it? Let's call it a baker's dozen. Um, what makes you great as a writer is that it's not that you you it's not that you write um, it's not that you sit down and write, but it's that you you keep going past terrible feelings that you're not doing well or like the work isn't good. You know, you it's how you deal with adversity. Because when I look at some of my favorite writers, oh boy, the negativity they had to deal with it was like Dementors, you know, from Harry Potter, <laughs> sucking all the positive energy. Um, so what separates a good writer from a great writer is that a great writer, you know, might have their spirits dampened, but no amount of negativity can quench that fire. It's an obsession. Um, so allow that fire to, to, to burn bright and just and keep going. Um, because in the end, you know, it won't, it won't matter. As William Makepeace Thackeray said at the end of um, Barry Lyndon, all the characters depicted in this book, um, living or dead, Handsome or ugly, rich or poor, are now equal. <laughs>